Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavuta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Moed Katan, daf Kavchet, page 28. Talk about the final stretch. Um, our our Masachet is ending before our Siyum, right? We're finishing the daf, in it. this is 28, then we've got 29, and then we're on to a new Masachet. But our, our Siyum is Sunday, um, at the usual time, 10 Eastern Seaboard, 5 Israel. Uh, we're looking forward to hosting Dr. Michal Aspen, that's Yardena's brother, and other speakers from amongst our co-learners. We're looking forward. Um, it's a, you know, a, a good time to round off this Masachet. Okay, um, this daf is, I would say, far-ranging. There's a lot of different topics within our overarching topic of, you know, death. Um, one point I want to make it just very briefly because the daf goes into it more than I want to right now. It says, I don't know, halfway through the Abad Aleph, Shivim Seva Shmonim Gvurot. The comment here to me is reminiscent of certain lists within Perkei Avot of you know how old, what attribute we we connect to whichever age. So it says one who dies at the age of seventy, and we should keep in mind that David Hamelach died at the age of seventy, and that once upon a time. You know, 70 was considered the ripe old age. Nowadays, I think it's pretty young. Um, I mean, I I hope we all have the privilege to think of it as very young. Not very young, pretty young. Okay. Um, 70, as somebody who's reached 70 has reached old age. Shmonim Gvurot, someone who dies at the age of 80, dies at the strength. And we've got a verse to back that up. right? And so we have here a sense of how Chazal relate to a lifespan. Um, and the interesting thing I think about that is that because we're not given little blurbs of bios, meaning we try to, we at Talking Talmud try to give a, a who's who, but it's not as if there's a pop-up window that gives us the bio of how old people were, how long they themselves lived with, amongst Chazal, to see that later on the daf we get the information that Rav Chista lived to be 92 and Rabba lived to be 40. But when they're all on the, you know, two-dimensional on the daf, Everybody lives the same amount of time, which is, you know, ad infinitum to us where we get to learn their words. Um, to, when we talk about bringing them to life or understanding what their lives were like, I do think that that span of age becomes relevant and interesting. Um, and it's a kind of thing, this kind of tidbit of how how old were the members of Chazal is not always readily apparent. It's the kind of thing that comes up, it comes up here, but in other places as well, you know, by the by, if there's never a let's put this together in a list. Now, there are people who have done so, you know, that they've made it their life calling, let's say, to to track down these kinds of how old people were, you know, how, how long their lives were. But my point here is, A, the value of finding such tidbits, and B, um, the recognition that Chazal themselves had a sense of, you know, a lifetime in a, in a, in numbers that are fairly comparable to what we expect today. Meaning we're not talking, this is not an era where everybody was dying at the age of 35. Um, and we know that because, again, the understanding of 70 and 80 um, not being, you know, unheard of. Uh, okay. Then we have the next bit of the daf. And this, I think, is um, a very welcome um, creative discussion that I think everybody's heard this kind of story, at least, you know, off the cuff at one point or another, there's a discussion of how the Malach Hamavet, the angel of death, encountered all these different people of Chazal. So, for example, and we're talking here about their deaths, but 
the discussion is that, you know, um, and I'm going to jump around a little bit because I don't want to read all the words in the interest of time, but Chazayu the Havakamanam name, Rava sat before, Rava sat with his brother and he saw that Rava was dozing, but dozing, you know, at the end of his life, he's, um, he's in that sleep mode. So he says, Mar, meaning Mar, tell him, he says, tell to Rava, tell him the angel of death not to bother me, not to, not to tr- trouble me. Let's run, trouble. Amar Mar love shushvide So the concern is, he says, he says, um, the, they say, Master, again, Rava, is it, um, is it he shushvide? Is it he someone that you're with? Is he your friend? Amarlay and Rava then says, Kivan Dimsar Mazala Lo Ashkbi Ashkachbi. Um Rava says, My Mazal, my feet, has already been handed to the Malachabavit. So he's not paying any attention to me, right? He's not here to bother me because he knows when he's coming. So this to begin with is like, you know, their old friend, the one who bothers who's bothersome and annoying to one brother and is a friend or uh you know not even any anybody of consequence for the other brother and then we get all these all these um scenarios stories of different people who encounter the malachamavit along the way so Rebelezer was eating truma and the malachamavit appeared to him and he says i'm eating truma like how dare you come now i'm in a i'm in a holy mode you can't i can't die now i can't depart now because that will make the truma Tame, right? With death, right? His body becomes Tame, and then the Truma will become Tame. So the Malachim of it accepts that and goes away. And he lives, you know, for however long afterwards. Rav Sheshet is in the marketplace. And this, I think, is one of the stories that is perhaps the most, maybe it's just known in my family, right? The idea that Chazal would go walking in the marketplace and encounter the Malachim of it. And so here, Rav Sheshet appears to him, and Rav Sheshet says to him, what, I'm going to die in the marketplace like an animal? Come come back later. Come when I'm at home. So he so apparently he does, right? Meaning he doesn't die at that time. Ravashi's in the marketplace. And Ravashi says, Listen, I, I have to review all my studies. Come back in a month. And indeed, that's what happens. He comes back in a month. And then Ravashi says, like, what's your rush? What's your rush? Push push it off. You know, I, I have things to do. Ravchista, now keep in mind, we've just said that Ravchista lived to be 92. And the and, and, uh, Gemara here says that the Malachamavis was never able to take Rav Chista because he was always so engaged in Torah study that interrupting him would have been, you know, inappropriate. So this is also another well-known story. That's his learning. So what happens? The Malachamavit goes and he waits. He sits on the the pillar that's supporting the roof of the Beit Midrash. So then the, the <laughs> excuse me, the tree or the pillar, it's not really a tree, the the pillar of cedar wood cracks. And Rav Chista is quiet for a moment because he was startled by that sound. And in that moment, he stopped talking Torah. And so then the Malachim was able to take him. Likewise, he was not, the Malachim wasn't able to take Rav Chia. 
And again, Rav Chia has to like, um, the Malchabavit has to kind of distract him from doing righteous acts in order to be able to to capture to capture his soul, I suppose. So I, I really like the, let's call it personification here, right? Of the instant of death and the fact that all of them, not all of them maybe, but like there's a presentation here of not yet. I'm not ready, not under these circumstances. You know, don't don't take me in this way, and it seems to be effective. And I feel like this is, you know, uh, what's the expression? Wish embodiment, right? Like this is exactly what everybody wants: another thirty days to keep doing what they love doing most, or to be so involved in what they're doing that they can't even be be bothered to stop for die to die. And I feel like, you know, this I think is the in some ways this is I think a Chazal commentary on what does it mean to die, like. There is a great impatience with the with the notion to begin with, meaning yes, death is part of life, and yes, we have all of these halachot, and yes, we can discuss the Odyssey really until the chaos come home. But at the end of the day, here we have, you know, rabbi after rabbi, rabbi after rabbi after rabbi, who knows that his time is near, and and nonetheless is able to be, you know, have some measure of equanimity about it because a either they're just accepting it or B, they're going to have a dialogue with the Malachim that says not now, which of course is, you know, what we all hope for. So a couple things about, you know, this whole Amad Aleph. First of all, you know, going back to that thing about, uh, you know, how old some of Chazal were when they die. I mean, I think that's what's, you know, challenging with the Gemara is there isn't a section that says like, here's what you need to know about Rabbi Akiva. It's these kind of little tidbits that appear throughout the Gemara, right? And you have to like pull them out and then construct your own, uh, you know, biography. And I think that's something that we've been trying to do. Um, look, I think it's really fitting that sort of this last full doc uh, that we have sort of now discusses, as you said, sort of the impatience with death, right? This notion that, you know, did we really fulfill everything that we were meant to do? Did we use our time well? And I think these are what these stories are about sort of Chazal encountering the Melech HaMabed and sort of saying either, you know, not now, I need some more time and being granted 30 extra days or, you know, being so busy and so active that almost in a way there's no way that person could be taken. And, you know, I think we always read these stories. Are they meant to be literal or, you know, are they using the Melech HaMabed as a literary device to tell us something about how they felt about death and how death comes upon a person, right? This whole idea that it's sort of like, if you just sit for a second, then the Melech HaMavet comes, I think it's sort of uh, expressing to us this sense of, you know, time and uh, the energy that many of us have that we sort of have to cram everything in because we just don't know when it's going to end. And, you know, I know that we mentioned before that it was amazing to see how they like sort of went through the halakha to only the last few dopping that is starting to get very uh, into the theological realm. And it's not that much. I mean, you know, it's a couple of pages, uh, but where it does, it does it very well. Yes. And I want to just add, I feel like there's another aspect to bringing in the Malachim of it here, which is, I would say, and I think it's most pre- present in the first story with Rava, which is the inevitability of it. Right, which I think is also part of the discussion of like, not yet give me 30 days, recognizing that those 30 days are also going to come to an end. Um, you know, not now I'm eating truma, but 
the Tuma will also be like the the recognition that, you know, as much as there's an impatience and a not readiness and so on, there's also a recognition that the Malcolm of it is going to be there. And that's why I say like this personification, embodiment, whatever, the idea of death being Rava's friend, I think is also kind of welcome. Right. And that it's going to happen no matter what. All right. I'm going to move on to Ahmed Vet now. We have our last Mishnah. So we have a Mishnah here that's going to give us a description of how people actually mourned um, in the sense of what were sort of the vocal expressions of mourning. And that on Cholomoed, women can wail over the deceased, but they're not allowed to meet Pachot, which is some type of clapping they did. Rabbi Yishmael Mer Hasmuchot Lamita Mitpachot. Those who are close to uh, the body, right? Uh, they are allowed to clap. On uh, Rosh Chodesh Purim, you actually can do the wailing and the clapping. So it has a little bit of a different status in the Cholomoid. But on both Cholomoid and Rosh Chodesh Chanukah Purim, we don't do, we don't, we don't say keynote, right? Nikbar uh, after the deceased is buried, then all of the clap, wailing and clapping has to end on both of the, on all these types of days. What is considered wailing? It's when they all wail together. So that would be, it was sort of like lead. One person would say something and then everybody would repeat it afterwards. Um, please notice here that the, uh, the gender, uh, the pronoun here that's being used is, is plural uh, female. Um, that this was clearly something that was done by the woman. And we'll see that reflected later on in the page uh, where it goes through um, these Nashe de Shachnitziv and it reviews many of the things that they sort of would uh, would cry or wail, you know, when they did the wailing that they would say, and it seems like that was the wailing that they would say in unison together. Um, and they bring a pasuk uh, to, uh, to teach us from Yermiyahu chapter nine, verse 19. Uh, right, teach your daughters wailing, meaning they say it together, right? And everyone and her neighbor, uh, layman, uh, uh, you know, say the kina. So that's the idea that it was responsive. And then the Gemara, the Mishnah, excuse me, sort of not wanting to end on a, let's say, death note, follows by saying, here they quote a pasuk from Yeshayahu, chapter 25, verse 8, which basically says that God will destroy death forever um, and God will wipe away the tears from all the faces. That in other words, in the future, our notion of death is going to not exist anymore, that somehow death will not be part of the human experience anymore. And it doesn't say what the Leti Lavo is. Presumably this would sort of be Yumot HaMashiach or some type of future um, but I think it's also beautiful the way the Mishnah sort of wants to end on a positive note and sort of recognizes that, yes, this is part of our human experience, but we can hope for a day where this is not really part of the human experience anymore. Um, and so I want to just do one quick part of the Gemara here, which is a beautiful story um, about a bunch of the Tanaim who come to comfort one of their own. Tana Rabbanan, Kishemetu Banafshel Rabbi Yishmael. So the sons of Rabbi Ishmael died. Now, first of all, this is interesting in itself. It's clear that it's not one son. We don't know how old they are. We don't know how many they are or wonder what circumstances. 
But the idea is, is that they they died together in a group. So four elders came to console him. Rabbi Tarfan, Rabbi Yosia Glili, Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria, Rabbi Akiva. Amr Lahem, Rabbi Tarfan. And so here, this is almost like, uh, I would say, its own story of Job, right? Like you have a man who loses everything, presumably, and the friends come uh, to give comfort, right? And Amr Lahem, Rabbi Tarfan. So Rabbi Tarfan basically says, um, he says, everybody should know what? That Rabbi Shmuel is a great sage and knows Agadata. So therefore, nobody should interrupt the other person. Let each person sort of say their own unique thing that they want to say. And then it ends with, I'm a Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva says, I'm going to go last. Okay, this is a very Rabbi Akiva thing to do. Patach Rabbi Yishmael Vamar. So Rabbi Ishmael opens and says this first. Now, again, I think this is interesting because what this story is showing us is how does a Shiva visit work? And we know that one of the halachot is, is that the mourner actually has to initiate the conversation. And we see that that is what Rabbi Ishmael does, right? He is patach. Rabu avonotenu techavfuhu avelav hitriach rabotav pam rishana And he says, many are his sins, right? His, his, um, and that basically his bereavements came quickly and he troubled his teachers once and a second time to console him, right? So the idea is, is that Rabbi Ishmael is basically sitting and saying, look at all these, you know, look, this must be the result of sin and look at all these terrible things and look how quickly uh, this all happened to me. Um, and Anet Rabbi Tarfon Vamar. So Rabbi Tarfon, after letting him finishing speaking, answers him and says, and now what they're going to do is they're going to bring different examples of mourning and loss from Tanakh and try to learn something from it as a way of consoling Rabbi Yishmael. So this is a pasuk from Vayikra chapter 10, verse 6, and it has to do with when Nadav and Avihu are killed, Aaron's sons, right? And it says, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that, the, that, hash, that God has kindled. And he says, are these not a kalva homer? who only performed one mitzvah that was explicitly said in the Torah, right? The sons of Aaron brought the blood to him. This is a pasuk from Vayikar, chapter 9, verse 9, right? So this was stated about them. So there too, with the sons of Rabbi Yishmael, right, who we knew did, Many, many mitzvot, all the more so everybody should cry for them. So in other words, the idea is we cry about the sons of our, the B'nai Israel were instructed to cry over the sons of Aaron, who only maybe did one mitzvah. And you, Rabbi Yishmael, your sons deserve for sure to be cried over because they did many mitzvot. Now we get to the second Tana. Now, now Rabbi Yossi Haglili. So Rabbi Yossi Haglili comes. And what does he say here? Right. He talks about the story of Aviyah, the son of uh, Yerubam. That all of B'nai Israel came and mourned for him and buried him. This is a pasuk from Malach Amal, chapter 14, verse 13. Is this not a kalvachomer? Right? Aviyah ben Yeravam, who only did one good thing. Because the pasuk said also in that same pasuk, it says, because in here there was found some good, meaning davar tov, one thing that he did good. Kach, 
But not Rabbi Yishmael al Chakam Vokama. Here, with the sons of Rabbi Yishmael, whom we know did many good things, of course, right? All of B'nai Israel should mourn and, and mourn for them and bury them. And then the Gemara goes on to say, what was the Devar Tov? We'll skip that part. Um, but but the idea was basically that he um, he uh, uh, it, it had to do with uh, that he went up to Yerushalayim uh, for the Regalim um, and he removed the guards that Yeravim had posted at, at on the road so that people could not actually go to Yerushalayim. Okay, this is after the kingdoms were split, but that that's a digre- that, that's uh, uh, not the main point here. Now we get to Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria. Now and now Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria. Um, right? And what does he say? B'shalom tamud u'bemisrafot avotacha ha'mlachim ha'rishonim asher hayu lefanacha kach yisrafu lach. So he's talking about Sidkiyahu ha'melech, right? Who was the last king of Israel uh, before, uh, you know, the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. And this is a pasuk from Yirmiyahu, chapter 34, verse 5, right? That says, you shall die in peace with the burnings of your father, the former kings that were before you, so they shall melt the burning for you. Right, He says, here's another only did one mitzvah that he took Yirmiyahu out of the uh, pit, okay? And that's Yirmiyahu chapter 38. You can see that. So too, the sons of Rabbi Yishmael who did many good things, they should be rewarded the same way Tzidkiyahu was that they should die in peace. So again, he says this as a way of comforting him. The Gemara is going to go on to actually talk about did Sitkiyahu actually die in peace because he was he was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar and they celebrate saying that Nebuchadnezzar died before him, but they do ask that question. And then finally, we get to um, Rabbi Akiva. Now, Neb Rabbi Akiva v'amar, bayom alhu yigdal ha-mispad Yerushalayim kimispad so here he quotes an unusual pasuk from Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 11. And it's interesting here because it's not referring to a specific story, right? Zechariah is prophecy. And it says on that day, and usually when it says, this is referring to a day in the future. There shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning of Hadramimon um, in the valley of Megiddon, right? And so the Gemara wants to tell us that, uh, that Rabbi Yosef says that we didn't have the Targum for this, the Aramaic translation. We didn't know what this would be talking about. And what it's talking about is that, that uh, and again, I'm just for time's sake, reading a little, just reading outside, that when at the time of mourning in Rishalayim, it'll be as great as the mourning over Ahab, who was the son of Omrim, who was killed by um, uh, Hadad Rimon, um, and also the mourning of over Yoshia, who was the son of Amnon, who was slain by Paro, in the Valley of Megiddon. So in other words, that eventually there will be mourning in Rishalayim that was as great as the morning when these two people were killed. And Bani says, V'halo devarim kavachomer. This also is a kavachomer. Uma achab mel Yisrael shaloasa el davar And achab, right, we know is not a good king at all. He only did one good thing. aram. The king propped up his chariot facing aram, right? He didn't want the Jewish people to see that he was mortally you know, wounded and flee, right? Um, so so this was the one good thing he did, kaf, right? So this, right, he still was greatly mourned. And even the more so that the sons of Rabbi Yishmael, they also should be, uh, they should be uh, 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 greatly mourned. Now, do I think that um, 
uh, Rabbi Akiva's is so much better than the other ones. I think what's interesting about Rabbi Akiva's is that he takes a pasuk that relates to a national tragedy, right? That talks about the mourning in Yerushalayim. And to me, I think what's different here than what the other uh, Tanaim did is the other Tanaim tried to go to, okay, we know this person died and they were mourned and this person died and they were mourned. And here I think what Rabbi Akiva is doing in a very subtle way is saying to Rabbi Shmuel, your tragedy is really a national tragedy. We all feel this. The way that everyone mourns Yerushalayim, this is the way that we're actually mourning this, the, the, the death of your sons. Even though that pasuk ends up referring to a specific death, but it's within the context of the mourning of Yerushalayim. And so I think we learned something, uh, you know, very interesting here that part of what, why Rabbi Akiva goes last is, is that I think part of what we're, we're learning here is the way to give proper nichumim, the way to properly comfort a person is to say to that person is that like, I actually feel what you're feeling. And what that means is it's actually expressing empathy, right? That's ultimately what I think Rabbi Akiva does that is a little bit different uh, than the other Tanaim. The other Tanaim are saying, yes, your sons deserve to be mourned. But Rabbi Akiva, by putting it in the context of Yerushalayim, is saying the same way that we all feel the grief over Yerushalayim, we feel the same grief over your 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 sons. We have empathy. We feel we feel the same way you do. We can sit here in this moment of grief with you. And so I think we're going to have a very, very short stop tomorrow. Um, but I think this is really one of the beautiful ways that this Masachet is wrapping itself up is that by giving us the story of Rabbi Yishmael and these four Tanayim, and, you know, that Rabbi Akiva specifically says, I want to go Afron, is that it's teaching us how to approach the mourner with empathy, and that that is a key piece of how we comfort people. Um, I think that's a really important, really critical lesson, um, especially if you think about how many things people say when they don't know what to say, and it's not necessarily advisable. I want to note, again, that this is one of the few times, right, that we've seen Yerushalayim, the mourning for Yerushalayim invoked as part of or the experience of mourning for people, you know, in general. Um, and I also want to comment on Rabbi Kiva's life because there are a lot of, and we were talking about Chazal's life and how long their lifespan is and, and their experience of it. There are many people in Chazal that we know much, much less about than we know about Rabbi Akiva, and not just his halachic positions, right? We know about how he got a late start, and we know about his marriage, and we know, right, there's so much that we know about who he is, and we know about his death, right? He has a terrible death. And I feel like the loss of his sons is kind of a little, a much lesser known, or at least lesser discussed aspect of things in his life. And I feel like Poor Rabbi Akiva. He's known to be he, so often. His piske halacha are are cheery, are joyous, are are pushing to the to the positive of human experience. And I feel like he had much more suffering. I think than we necessarily think about his unless you think about his death. Fine, his death death was horrible. But what about that late start life? And what about all those years apart from his wife? And now, what about these the loss of his children? I feel like. Oh man, poor Rabbi Akiva, and his and children, how did his he... students, his students, students, right? students? Yes, exactly. Meaning, it was a rough time. You know, his the era in which he lived was a rough time. But he seems to have gotten, you know, really the short end of the stick, and and doesn't seem to. I don't know. He, he doesn't seem to be tortured by it. Pardon the the expression, because he really was tortured to death. But but the. Right, his halacha is so 
pristine and separate from, you know, or or I would say even stronger. I feel like so often we look to Rabbi Akiva for the for the one who's going to speak psak that speaks to the human experience in the positive way. So, uh, you know, let's only admire him a little bit more. Right. So I think it's not shocking that he's sort of the ultimate comforter as well. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 